The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, you don't meet us in our strongest moment. You meet us in our weakest. Lord, you're not looking for us to have it all together. You're looking for us to understand that we can't. Lord, our lives are not one that is lived in at a, at an oasis. It's lived in the parched wilderness. And yet, understanding that our life is one of weakness and misery and despair and struggle, Lord, thank you that we can be here today and we can remember that in our misery and struggle and our thirst for satisfaction and for joy and for peace, you came to us and offered us water that we could never create on our own and never find on our own. Father, thank you that we can sit here today and in the quietness of our minds and hearts can admit to you that we are broken at the deepest level. And at the same time, we can sit in your joy and peace knowing that your son came to give us what we could never do for ourselves, earn for ourselves, that is reconciliation with you. Lord, I pray as we look at your word this morning, as we consider Jesus, as we see how he walked on this earth, who he went to, the, the, the glorious gospel that he proclaimed with his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I pray that we would be humbled under just the weight of your glory and the beauty of the gospel. In your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 4. We're starting a new chapter in the book of John, Gospel of John this morning. Before we get there, I have a question that I want you to start to consider. It's a question that I've been considering a lot and a question that really I think is going to carry us through the entire gospel. Here's the question. If Jesus came today, how would his ministry look in our time and place? If Jesus were to have his gospel ministry today, what would it look like? This has actually been a question that I've thought a lot about as I've been reading and preparing for this book and for these messages. It's actually a question that a couple of authors have taken the time to consider what Jesus's life would look like. There's one of them, I, I, would, I would recommend this book to you. It's Robert um, Chapin. He wrote uh, the book, The Guy Who Met God in a Bar. And he writes as if Jesus' ministry took place, it was, it was a while ago, so like basically in the 90s in America. And it was fascinating because it had things in there that I kind of ruffled at because I was like, I don't really think that Jesus would go to that place or go to those people or say those things or sit with, the, with those people. And yet, the more I read the gospel, I realize, nah, maybe Robert was right. You see, if Jesus came today, he would shatter so many of our long-held religious expectations in the way that we do church. We live our life trying to fit, trying to get the most simplest life possible, trying to uh, iron out all of the details. We all view the world through a very specific lens. And that lens, that lens is really specific to each and every one of us. It's really hard for every single person to have the same worldview or same perspective on life because our perspective is formed by so many external factors that are enacted upon us. Our place of origin does this. I'm a southerner. 
which means I'm going to have, I'm going to look at the world in a very different way or in a, in a different way that some of you northerners would not, or Californians, because I know there's a lot of those in our context. You're just going to have a different worldview. You're going to, you're going to look at things differently. I'm an American. I think about the world and my culture from the perspective of an American. I have not lived outside the country for any long period of time. Maybe some of you have spent time abroad, and so you're going to have a different lens because you're not going to think of it just as the American would think of it, but maybe from another country perspective, from social demographics, from life experiences, good, bad, and ugly, all grow together to create in us a unique perspective on life. And that perspective is earned through hardship through trauma, through, as I said, good things, bad things, and ugly things. Man, all of us carry this perspective that we then apply to what our version of the right way of living and thinking is. And really, the right way of living and thinking has been refined by years of living in a sinful and broken world. And we then take that perspective and we apply it to the Christian worldview and we think to ourselves, this is how things are supposed to be. If you, if you play within this box, if you do these things, this is the best way to live life. Here's what we're going to see today, and we're going to see for many, many chapters and many, many stories in the book of John, is that when Jesus comes in, he does not operate by the human perspective of the world. He takes the perspective of what the disciples thought the best way to live was, and he turns it on his head. And what happens when people start living outside of those normal lines of thought process? What happens when somebody walks contrary to those perspectives? Well, for some of us, it's scary because we're like, wait a second. I know the best way to live and that's not it. Others, well, uh, it's frustrating because you're like, listen, if you just stay within this pretty little box that we have drawn here, life can be peaceful and happy. Still more, when people go contrary to our, to our perspective, it's perplexing because we consider, can it really be done another way? We have all of the finer points of our life ironed out. And if we can just be honest with each other, life goes better when we play within the box that we've created for ourselves. Here's what we're going to see. When Jesus comes into both our life and to the cultural uh, expectations around him in first century A.D., he blows up all of those perspectives. His disciples, I kind of feel bad for them. They didn't know what they were signing up for because his disciples are constantly being put in situations that go contrary to their cultural boundaries. The conversations that he has are constantly going against the grain of what people are thinking. And his readers, I mean, think about his readers when John's writing this gospel and dispersing this. His readers, for the first time they read it, and even for us, are being told a story that is completely unexpected and is astonishing. I think everyone pushes back from this book and goes, he really did that? That's where he went, that's what he said, that's who he gave the gospel to? And so as we start in, on chapter four, here's what we're gonna see. Today we're shifting gears and we're shifting locations. It's the same old Jesus that we've seen for the first three chapters of this book, but what we're gonna see is Jesus or we're, we're, rather, we're going to witness Jesus' disciples learning in real time that he is the savior of the whole world, not just the Jewish world. And unlike many of our cultural expectation, expectations, Jesus does not discriminate against those people whom we don't like. He is the savior of all. So with that, here's what I want to do. I want to read for us our passage today. We're going to be in the chapter, of, uh, chapter four of John for a while. I'm going to 
take the first 15 verses. I'm talking fast because I have a lot of, I have far more notes than I have for many sermons. So I'm going to do some editing on the fly. I'm going to get us out of here on time, kind of. Uh, But here's, I'm going to read the first 15 verses of John 4 and we'll go from there. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself was not baptizing, only his disciples were, we covered that last time that we were together, he left Judah and departed again for Galilee, and he had passed through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside a well, and it was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, "Uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, um, if you knew the gift of God, if you, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, uh, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? For he gives us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We're going to stop there for the morning. We'll pick up the rest of the story next week as we move on. This chapter begins with a transition. We had a transition last time as we're heading into John the Baptist. There's another transition. Let's quickly work through that transition. Jesus was in Judah outside the region of Jerusalem baptizing people. And as we talked about last time, John the Baptist was there and John the Baptist crowd who he was baptizing was diminishing and they were going over to Jesus. And Jesus crowd was making a stir so much so that the Pharisees were observing and going, wait a second, we had to go question this John the Baptist dude for baptizing. Now we have to go question this Jesus dude for baptizing. And Jesus clearly knew about this. He's clearly saying, we are creating a ruckus here. We are attracting a lot of attention. And for whatever reason, I mean, it could be that the Pharisees were gathering a group of Pharisees to go and talk to Jesus about what are you doing here? The same way that they did with John the Baptist. Maybe the Pharisees were trying to get together and saying, you know, we should really enact some laws and standards around this baptism thing. We should regulate this sucker because some people are really getting out of hand here. Look at all these crowds building and, and baptizing. Or it could be that Jesus didn't want to boost his platform anymore. For whatever reason, he looks at his disciples and says, we're going to head north. We're going back to Galilee. This is where, in Galilee was where he had his first miracle at the wedding wedding of Cana. So regardless of why Jesus moved, he moved. And look where he went. He said he passed through Samaria. Now, if you were reading this for the first time and you were uh, in first century AD, you would have a question. The question would be, did he really have to pass through Samaria? Because... Good Jews actually don't pass through Samaria. Now, I want to uh, try to describe for you the, geogra- the map of the region. There are a couple of um, key features here that can help us understand what's going on. Think of, think of Nashville for a moment. We're south of Nashville. 
If we are in Brentwood, on the tail end of Brentwood, we are beside the Dead Sea. And just above us, let's call that Antioch. And then above that, there is Nashville. And there's Nolensville Road that goes up through Nashville. And it could be very easy for us to hop on Nolensville Road and drive through Antioch to get to Nashville. And that's probably the most easiest way to get to Nashville. Well, for Jews, if they were in Judah, if they were in Jerusalem, they were down south. And if they wanted to get to Galilee, they would have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is. And the Jordan River connected the Sea of Galilee, which was up north, to the Dead Sea, which was down south. But a good Jew did not want to go through Samaria, which we'll get into why that is in a minute. So the good Jews, saying we really shouldn't go through Samaria, would take an interesting route. Instead of going directly north, which is the direction they had to go, they would actually go east. They'd hang a right. And they would cross the Jordan River. Now, why in the world would you want to cross a river that you didn't have to cross in the first place? Because you'd have to get everything wet, and that, you just you wouldn't want to do that. But they'd cross the Jordan River. Then they would go north. Then they would take a left, go west, to get to Galilee. They would take a very interesting route. They would take a longer route. But yes, it would be longer. But it was a slight inconvenience that they would have to pay for not to have to deal with those people, the Samaritans. So when these readers are reading that Jesus went through Samaria, you have to ask a question, was this for convenience? That Jesus so much had to get out of Judah that he took the fastest route? Or was it because he was on mission? Well, I think it was because he was on mission. There's one more side note that I want to go on before we look at this woman in this story. And it's the description that we get of Jesus. Jesus was wearied from his journey and was sitting beside the well. You and I get tired. You and I need water. You and I need food. But Jesus, being truly God, does not naturally need food, water, and sleep. Jesus, being truly God, existed before food was even a thing, water was even a substance, and sleep didn't happen. Jesus humbled himself so much so by taking on flesh that he submitted himself to the weariness of the human condition. I mean, it is an aside here, but the fact that our Savior, the creator of the world, emptied himself so much so that he had to deal with the basic plight of mankind. I've walked so far that I need to rest. This is God. He created all of these things, and yet he is submitting himself to the misery of mankind. I mean, this is God. Think about how God handled people who were thirsty in the, in, in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel grumbled to God, there is no water. They were in the wilderness. And what did God do? Looked at Moses and said, strike the rock and speak to the rock. And out of the rock, I'm going to create water. So if Jesus is weary and he's sitting there saying, I need a drink, but I don't have anything to draw from. He could have just looked at the stones or just said, produce water. But he didn't. Because this passage tells us the extent of his humility. He gave up heaven... He gave up all of his divine powers to come to us. He lived a life of need for us. I mean, again, it makes sense when you go, I'm really tired, I'm really thirsty, I need to sleep. But Jesus, that doesn't make sense. He only is going to use his miraculous powers not to make his life easier, but to show us why we need him. So when we say that he suffered for us, that Jesus suffered for us, it's not just at the crucifixion. 
but it's also that he lived a life of suffering, dealing with the same plights and struggles that normal human beings deal with so that he could bring us the gospel. Now, that's all transition stuff. Let's meet this woman. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The scenery has changed quite a bit since the last sections of John. We left the nation of Israel. We left Judaism. We left the good religious people behind. And Jesus is now sitting in front of somebody that any good Jew would never want to sit in front of. But if you can think back to what we have just gone through, what we have seen in the last two chapters is four events where Jesus demonstrates that he fulfilled and surpassed Judaism. We saw with the water and the wine that Jesus is the true purification. We saw with the temple that he is the true temple. We saw with Nicodemus that he is the true birth. We saw with John the Baptist that he's the true baptism. But what happened during those events in Israel What begun, if you will, in the outermost court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, is now taking place in the land of the Gentiles in real life. Think back to that episode with the temple. Why did Jesus lose his mind when he walked into the temple and throw over all of those tables? It was because they were taking the court of the Gentiles and making it a marketplace. It's because they were taking the court of the Gentiles and filling it so much that the Gentiles had no place to come before the Lord. They had secured all of the other spots where the Jews needed to go so they could worship Yahweh, but they had filled the court of the Gentiles with all this other stuff, essentially saying, he's not for you. Look at where we see Jesus sitting in front of a Gentile woman bringing his message of salvation to a Gentile. What this story is going to show us is that all people are equal. And God's call is not a call to be like the Jews. God's call is rather saying is the same to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Look to me. This encounter is scandalous on so many different levels. Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan. But not only a Samaritan, he's having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. That didn't go down. But not only a Samaritan woman, he's having a conversation with an immoral, scandalous Samaritan woman. Now, we're going to get into more of why that's the case next week. But trust me, the fact that she's showing up here at a well at noon is demonstrating for us that she is rejected even by her own people. And yet Jesus is willing to start a conversation with her. You know, if you and I were sitting by this well today and we saw this person come up, we're going to pick up our stuff and move away. We're going to say, I'm going to go find another spot to sit in because they're too dirty for me to be next to. But rather, Jesus doesn't move away from her. He moves towards her by having a conversation with her. So right off the bat, we should be shocked by this. You see, think again about our preconceived notions and perspectives of the world. There's some people we are eager to have a conversation about Christ with. There are other people who will tolerate having a conversation about Christ with under the right circumstances. But there's still more that we would never dream about having a conversation about Christ with because we would never dream about having a conversation with them Every time, I've listened to a couple of sermons on this passage. I've heard a couple um, about them. And and 
I want to say 100%, but the majority of them always use the illustration of Hitler in this passage. Hitler being that ubiquitous, the worst person that we could possibly think of. And it goes, Jesus would even go to Hitler. He would even offer grace to Hitler. And he would, I'm not necessarily saying that that illustration is wrong, but I think it's easier for us to understand that illustration because we're like seven steps removed. We know what happened in life and time, but it, it, that's, not, that's not really gonna happen. You know what's harder to apply this passage to? Is somebody that actually exists in our society today. Somebody that we would go, yeah, they're, they're, they're not quite there yet. They're, they're, they're dirty. They're going to um, uh, cause a ruckus if they show up here. It's, easy, it's, it's easier for us to think of those really bad people. It's harder for us to think of those people that are just one step off. And this is where I go back to all of us have that perspective. There's some of you out here that go, if you come to Christ, you have to look like X, Y, and Z and fit this box. There are others that go, if you come to Christ and you have the wrong sin, you better repent of that sin very quickly because you can't exist in Christ and have that sin. There's something inside of you right now that goes, those people can't come here. As a good religious Jew, this woman fit that category. The good religious Jew, the thing inside of their head would say, I wouldn't stand too close because some people might get the wrong impression. Are you worried about standing too close to a certain center so that you're going to be judged by your fellow Christians because, uh-oh, they're giving too much grace? Is there somebody or, some, or, or is there a group of people that might struggle with some certain thing that you're like, ah, you know what? I wouldn't stand close to them because I might be judged by it. Because in the Jewish culture, that is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is stepping in and his disciples are going to come back. We're going to look at it in a couple of weeks. And their jaws are going to hit the floor because they're going to say, Jesus, don't you know who this woman is? You shouldn't be close to her. I have to consider how radically different this circumstance is from the last time we saw Jesus have a personal conversation. The last person was a Jew. That makes sense. Jesus, a Jew, talking with another Jew. That makes sense. And he was a Jewish man. Okay. There's no problem there. Yes, you should have a, a conversation with a Jewish man. And on top of that, he was a morally upstanding Jewish man. So that conversation, no one looked at and said, oh, you probably shouldn't do that. No one looked at that conversation and accused Jesus of being defiled from his conversation. But rather, everyone who looks at this conversation with this Samaritan woman is accusing Jesus of being defiled from it. I wouldn't have that conversation with such a scandalous woman. I want to make this really applicable for us because the Lord has put it on my heart, so I'm, I'm going there. Um, our tagline here at church, which is even weird for a church to have a tagline, so I'll just admit that publicly, is ordinary people, extraordinary grace. That's a hard tagline to actually live by because the way that the Christian message and Christian culture here in America applies that is ordinary people that fit the proper religious model, extraordinary grace. Ordinary people that know how to use a Bible and extraordinary grace. Ordinary people that vote the right way and extraordinary grace. But what is an ordinary person? An ordinary person is somebody who struggles with sin. 
An ordinary person who is somebody who deep down in their soul knows that there is something in their life and many things in their life, maybe all of their life, that is an offense against God. An ordinary person who's somebody who knows that they haven't mastered the perfect Christian life, rather that they are just trying to fake it till they make it. The ordinary person is all of us. And yet so often there might be in your mind a person that you know that you go, I'd love to invite them to church, but I don't think that they could be accepted there. I think that particular sin, I, I, I think that would make some people uncomfortable. I mean, think about it. What if an individual walked in this room that you disagreed with their lifestyle, their sexual orientation, their outlook on culture, their you fill in the blank, and sat next to you? What would you be thinking in your mind? I hope one day they'll realize how wrong they are and repent of that thing. Who let them in here? How long are they going to come here to church before we start to address that sin in their life? But the problem is, well, not the problem. Actually, the gracious thing is, all of us should be thinking about that. Because if we're ordinary people, we all have that thing in our life, something in our life that we need to look before the Lord and repent of. You see, when we think about ordinary people and inviting them, we, we think about, well, you can come here, but you better change. Like, you, you might be a homosexual and walk into this place, but within the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk to you about that sin, and if you don't adjust from it, that's a problem. But when was the last time you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, yeah, I might not struggle with that, but I do struggle with this. And yeah, I might not, I might not need to repent of that sin, but I need to repent of this sin. When we say ordinary people, extraordinary grace, what we mean is that all of us have the, the, the same starting point in need of God's grace. Now, here's a footnote. I, I told some guys that I would do this. How, how then do we live a life in Christ and deal with that sin inside of us? That's where I would encourage you to come to our Sunday school class on sanctification and we will deal with that question because that is a messy question. That is a difficult question. That is a hard question. That's a question that makes some of us cringe, but we'll deal with it there 9 a.m. next Sunday morning. Okay, back on. Wow, hmm, man, I'm gonna have to cut this one even shorter than I thought. Okay, I've been talking about why this Samaritan woman was, was so offensive to the to the Jews, what this conflict was. Allow me to give you a, a brief history lesson in the nation of Israel and why this is the case. Why, as John gave us some description in, in verse 9, for Jews don't deal with Samaritans. The nation of Israel has the same starting point. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 sons turned into the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes all went through uh, Egypt together in slavery. All went through the Exodus together. All conquered the land of Canaan together. All had all of those really good and bad judges uh, together. All had um, Saul as a king, David as a king, Solomon as a king. But something happened with Solomon. There was, if you will, a civil war in between the nation of Israel and the kingdom split. And they're turned into two kingdoms. Ten tribes went to the northern kingdom called Israel, while the other two tribes went to the southern kingdom called Judah. And those kingdoms operated differently, were two separate entities, and they, they had similar histories that both had good kings and bad kings and both lived through good things and bad things. But in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by Assyria. Not 
the southern kingdom, just the northern kingdom. And when the northern kingdom was um, destroyed by Assyria, the Assyrians deported many of the Jews and sent them off to live in the other, the whole nation of Assyria, and they imported pagans, Assyrians. And then what happened was the Jews and the Assyrians intermarried, and the Assyrians brought some of their pagan religious beliefs and practices, and the Jews held on to their, uh, uh, oh, what's the word? Not Christianity, because Christ hadn't come yet. Judaism. Um, and they created this, in, this, this mixture of things. It was this uh, Samaritan religion that was a mixture of both Judaism and paganism. And so they believed in the Torah, the Samaritans, the first five books of the Old Testament, but they rejected anything that had Jerusalem in it because they, they rejected Jerusalem. They believed that they needed a temple, but they weren't going to go to, to uh, Solomon's temple, so they created their own temple on Mount Gerizim where they had their own place of worship. But it wasn't exactly like what was going on in Jerusalem. It was this mixture of having pagan practices. And so all of the good Jews who could not handle anything that was unclean or anything that was 100% of, of their beliefs viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds as children of political rebels, as perpetually unclean, as the dogs that they were, we have no dealing with them. It got so, so much worse that in, one, in a hundred, uh, 128 BC, one of the anti-Samaritan Jews destroyed the 200-year-old temple at Mount Gerizim. So there is a lot of hostility going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. All of this sets up the scene that's before us. So when we read this Samaritan woman responding to Jesus' request of give me a drink, it is crazy. I wish that we could know her true tone here. I mean, imagine, I, I, could, I could think that, that there could be some almost equal prejudice going on. When Jesus said, give me a drink, and her response is, uh, how is it that you a Jew who I hate? because you're a Jew and think you're better than, ask me for a drink. What, am I supposed to be your, your slave because I'm a Samaritan woman? She could be thinking that way of like, I, I want nothing to do with you. Could be just shock, bewilderment. How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink? We don't do that around here. Uh, which, which hole did you crawl out of? We're not friends here. It could be reserved joy. Somebody is willing to talk to me. We'll, we'll get into why she's there in the sixth hour next week, but it could be that she's going, somebody's willing to ask me for something. How is it that you and you are asking me? Thank you, but, but don't you know that I'm a Samaritan woman? Regardless of how she responds, culturally speaking, it is completely understood that no good Jew would ever ask a Samaritan what Jesus just asked her for. Because what Jesus just asked her for was, can I share a utensil with you? Can I get a drink out of the container that you brought with us? In about 100 years from, from now, when Jesus was speaking, the Jewish Talmud is going to be um, written by the Jewish leaders. And they're actually going to put in explicit laws about using utensils from Samaritans. Because here's what R.C. Sproul says, what, a Jew, what Jews were not allowed to do was to share eating utensils with Samaritans, particularly glasses or cups, because the Samaritans were considered unclean. You see, if you share a utensil, you're, you assume 
that you're at a level of having communion with them, like eating a meal with them, that you're, that you're engaging with a person, that you're having fellowship with that person. And as every good and righteous person knows, we don't have fellowship with sinners. So this lady is like, why are you asking me for this? How, how can this be? She is shocked. Probably what's underneath her question is, don't you know that my uncleanness is going to rub off on you? Don't you realize as a good Jew, you can't be talking to me because I'm unclean. That means you're going to have to go cleanse yourself. The awesome thing about this story, she's going to be shocked that instead of her uncleanness rubbing off on Jesus, Jesus's righteousness is going to be rubbing off on her. And what Jesus offers her is more amazing than she could ever imagine. And again, as a Jew reading this is going to shock them because his response, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now this Samaritan woman is trying to figure out, okay, where's this joker coming from? Living water, what is living water? I mean, isn't all water alive? Well, it's dead water. How does, how does this work out? But she, she goes to where any normal person would go. She goes, okay, okay but if, you, if, if I asked you for something to drink, you don't have anything to draw water with. See, normally what would happen in this time period is when people would, would journey, they would actually bring a bucket with them to draw water from these various wells. Well, clearly that bucket is with Jesus' disciples who were gathering food in the local town. So Jesus is sitting there with nothing and she's scratching her head going, how are you going to get water out of this well? I mean, this well is 2,000 years old. At this point, it's probably 100 feet deep. It's never stopped running. It's been the thing that they can guarantee. She clearly knows there's water in the bottom of it and going, how are you going to give me water out of this well? You don't have anything to draw water with. What I love about this well is it connects the greater history of God, the, the greater redemptive story to this place. Because here's what one commentator says, it connects the place within God's history of his people. The setting of this encounter is not merely first century Samaritan soil. It's ground upon which God has been toiling for centuries. In this sense, the entire biblical story becomes part of the map for this scene. This well of Jacob was dug over 2,000 years ago and was used to water countless animals. And now it's not just some geographical locator on a map, but rather it's a locator on the spiritual map saying all people can come to this well to receive. All people can come to Christ to receive living water. Just jumping ahead. A Jew would be reading this story and they wouldn't be shocked by the language of living water but they'd be shocked that living water was being offered to a Gentile. The Jews were actually looking for this living water. In the Old Testament and in, in the, in the prophets, this living water has been referenced many times, like Jeremiah 2.13. It's Jeremiah, I've been reading it for my personal devotions recently. Jeremiah is a great book, hard book to read. But where does it start? This is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and they have hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold no water. So this language that's in Jeremiah is what you need in your life is this living water and it's found in me and they've forsaken that. 
Zechariah 14 starts the chapter by saying, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will, will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then if you jump down to 8 and 9, On that day, that day of battle, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all of the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. There's this imagery of living water flowing out of Jerusalem and even flowing out of the temple. If you look at Ezekiel 47, I could read the whole chapter, but we don't have time for that. If you look at that chapter, what you can see is this living water is clearly coming from the temple. And as we have already discussed, Jesus is the true temple. These Jews were looking for that living water. And why were they looking for that living water? Because they were looking for satisfaction. That's why Jesus wanted to drink in his weariness sitting here. I thirst. I am parched. I need something. But that search for satisfaction is in all of us. And we attempt to be satisfied, to fill up our lives in a variety of manners. I mean, some of us try to gorge ourselves with food, and it satisfies our body for a moment. Others of us drink ourselves into a stupor, and it it numbs our mind for a minute. There's others who busy ourselves with work to distract for a time, from the misery that's dealing with. But what happens in all of those ways that we try to satisfy ourselves? Well, the food runs out, we sober up, the work ceases, and we're left in the same state of dissatisfaction. What is Jesus offering this Samaritan woman? Not some temporal fix that you're going to be able to quench your thirst, but a, a permanent everlasting living water that will never run dry. I love the language that it uses here, but I I wish if I could just tweak it ever so slightly when it says in verse 14, but whoever drinks of this water I will give to him and he will never thirst again. The water that I will give to him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Welling up is a little too passive of a verb or description here. The, The better translation of this would be springs up or leaps up or, or gushes forth this thing that can never be stopped. This water that I'm going to give you, this satisfaction that I'm going to give you, this hope that I'm going to give you is never going to run dry. And this woman in her need hears this and is blown away by the message that she's being offered. But I want to end where we began and it's obviously going to be a cliffhanger because we're ending in the middle of the story. If this woman lived today, I don't think we'd want her sitting next to us in the pews right now. Or if she was sitting next to us in the pews, the thing in the back of our head would be, if you're going to stick around here, you better clean up your act. But what we see from Jesus is that I actually don't think Jesus would be in this room. I think Jesus would be with sinners and tax collectors. I think Jesus would be in places that you and I wouldn't want to step foot. I think Jesus would be offering his grace to people that we would be ashamed to stand next to because we would hate for their sin and shame to rub off on us. But as Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 says, through 
him. Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. For there are no longer strangers and aliens. There are no longer those who are acceptable and those who are unacceptable. Those who can walk in this room and be okay, and those who can't walk in this room. But rather, we are all fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As we turn our attention towards communion this morning, this table does not have, this table has, has, has one boundary that you have to cross. This table has one entrance in order to partake of it. It's not anything, uh, any human standard. It's not any human expectation. It's this. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Full stop. So often we can look at this table and think, well, the only way that I can partake of this is if I fit the normal Christian mold, is if my life looks like the cultural expectations that are surrounding me. But that's not how Jesus' message went. He didn't go to the people that actually fit the religious mold. In fact, his entire ministry is this, accepting of the people that the religious individuals rejected and rejecting the religious individuals who thought they should be accepted. Flipped it on its head. That's the shorthand story of the gospel. You're good. You think you're good, but you're not. And so when we come to the table this morning, if you come in and you're thinking, "I, I shouldn't be here. I can't be here. I'm not enough. Here's the thing. We all should be thinking that because we're all ordinary people. We're all broken sinners. We're all in need of grace. We all have something in our life that Jesus would look at and go, can you stop? Because that is disrespecting God. That's not how God desires you to live. And yet we all come in here looking towards the grace of Christ. And by God's grace, he accepts all of us in our weakness and our sin. Let's pray and we can take this together. Father, thank you for the gospel for your word. Lord, these conversations like this can be difficult because the cultural expectations that we we hold to are long, we've held for a long time. Some of them are, are deeply seated in our souls and our hearts. Lord, I pray as a church, corporately, but as individuals, we would consider how we can be changed by observing your ministry. We would, we would prayerfully consider the, the pride and the self-righteousness that's in our own hearts, that we would have the boldness to stand next to people that maybe somebody's gonna judge us for, but knowing that that's where Christ would have been. Father, I pray that we would be a people that's known for proclaiming your extraordinary grace that we would first be so indiscriminate in our, in our gospel presentation and our love for others that we would be willing to, sh- to share it with anyone and to invite anyone to, to church, but more than that, to you. Father, break us of our pride and our sin. In your name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.